As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job. Chapter 11 is where we are going to begin together tonight. We will go all the way through chapter 14 as we think about Zophar and what he has to say to Job and what Job says in response to get us going. However, let me just read chapter 11, which represents Zophar's contribution to this part of Job's conversations with his counselors, and then I'll pray and we'll begin. So here now as God does speak to you through his perfect word. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do deeper than shale? What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish and you will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery and you will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday and its darkness will be like the morning and you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take in rest in your security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you minister to us. Your kindness and your comfort by your word and spirit. You who is the God of all comfort has shown us your everlasting kindness and compassion in your son Jesus Christ. And so sustain us even this night as we think once again about what it means to suffer righteously with faithfulness and obedience. As we look always to you with eyes of hope and we pray it in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a professor in town recently that was here for a series of lectures, and when I had the chance to meet him, he, he told me that he was the father of four children, three living, and one now departed to glory. And when I had the chance later on after his lecture to talk to him about his children, he told me the story of his daughter that was lost to stillbirth seven days before her due date. And he movingly and eloquently just recounted the suffering and hardship that belongs to such a grief and and such a trial. 
of laying a child into the grave, one that you never actually heard cry, one that you never actually got to see walk, one that you never got to hear speak, but still a child of yours nonetheless. And he began to recount the various counsels and and comforts that he had received in the months and certainly even years since. And he remarked how one thing from a very close friend stuck out to him, stood out to him in all of these comforts and counsels. And it was this friend who had said, you know, the Lord has entrusted you with, quote, the silent stewardship of a quiet grief. And it certainly is a stewardship of suffering that we've seen the Lord has entrusted to Job already by this point when we come to chapter 11 in our book. But Job's stewardship of suffering has been far from a quiet grief. You know, if you've been with us in recent weeks, you remember, I trust, that we've heard Job shriek and shout in chapter 3. Uh, We have seen him complain and cry. We have read of him languishing and lamenting. And all of it's going to come out once again tonight. But he still has a stewardship of suffering. The jury, if you will, is still out on whether or not he's going to curse God in the midst of all his calamity and tragedy. And the toughest blow yet comes now in the form of his third friend to show up, this man named Zophar. Last week, we saw the second conversation with one of his counselors. This was a man named Bildad. And if you remember what Bildad told Job, it was kind of retribution theology at its purest form. You are getting what you deserve. So just repent of your sin and you'll be restored. And Bildad, in all of his bluntness, actually, there's a much more caustic tone even to what Zophar has to say tonight. And what we're going to find by the end is that Job seemingly is going to be giving up on all of these friends and their ability to give him the comfort and the kindness that he so desperately desires. If you know the book, yes, he's going to talk to them. There are going to be cycles of conversations that continue. But by this point, he's really hoping or expecting nothing's going to come from the conversation with his friends. And the unifying theme that belongs to these four chapters is probably best said in the form of a question. Is there hope for a sinful person? What hope is there for sinful people as they suffer under a storm of God's Sovereignty, or you could apply the question perhaps in a different way, when you suffer all alone, in what or in whom will you hope? Because we're going to find by the end of chapter 14, Job seemingly is going to recognize yet again that he's left all by himself, to mourn all by himself, that there's nobody left to comfort and to counsel him, but in ways that are altogether striking and in some ways quite famous in this little book. There are these rays of gospel truth that shine forth in the text tonight. So if you're new to us in our studies of Job, uh, you should know, of course, that it's quite difficult to cover in great detail four chapters in about 25 minutes. And what I'm trying then to do in the course of these studies and the cycle of conversations is give you just the bare essentials that belong to the counselor's point of view and then how Job responds to it. And by now you probably have figured out that there's a predictable pattern that belongs to these conversations. The friend speaks, Job responds to the friend, and by the end, Job is now speaking to God. He kind of turns his attention towards the end of his discourse with each friend away from the individual counselor and he He's going to do the exact same thing tonight. And so we'll see our four chapters in three parts. The first of which is Zophar's rebuke. Because you see what he says in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 11. He says, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? 
and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? Uh, We talked last week about Bildad being full of bluntness. He's got all this bluster. And if you wanted to think about Zophar in the nature of his counsel and supposed comfort, he's just carelessly confident. It's almost as though what he was listening to, what we looked at last week, is this exchange between Bildad and Job. And all the while, maybe he's sitting on his hands, maybe he's got this steel-eyed gaze on his face. He's desperate for Job to stop speaking so then he can jump into the conversation and say what he thinks needs to be said to Job. As you'll notice, he's just said, Job, you're just babbling. Job, you're just mocking. Understand, this is Job's friend saying, don't you think it's time that someone now shames you? And if you want to know the degree of Harm and hurt that Zophar would throw Job's way. Look at the end of verse 6. Here's his decision and verdict on the matter. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. That's quite a thing to say to someone in the midst of suffering, isn't it? That's even more advanced in its harm, no doubt, than what we saw with Bildad last week. Bildad looks at Job's life and says, Job, people get what they deserve. You got this because for some reason, probably your serious sin, you deserved the loss of your ten children, the loss of all your health, the loss of all your wealth. And then here comes Zophar, the next round, and says, actually, Job, you are much worse of a sinner than that. You should have gotten worse from the Lord than the loss of everything. I've thought for years, what is it exactly in Zophar's mind that would have been worse for Job to experience? Maybe it's ten children dying via torture instead of a tornado. What exactly was it that he thinks Job deserves more of? And if you just glance your way through the following verses in chapter 11, it becomes quite clear that what Zophar thinks is going on in Job's life is something that can be answered according to God's sovereign majesty and mystery. You see verse 7, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty, it is higher than heaven. What can you do deeper than shale? What can you know? If it's rightly said that Eliphaz, this first friend, he thought Job's sin was slight. I think that's fair. Bildad, last week, we saw Bildad think Job's sin was serious. Now, Zophar, by waxing eloquent about God's sovereignty and majesty, seems to say that Job's sin is secret. But of course, not secret to God, for look at what he says in verse 11. For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? And we've said before, haven't we, that with Job's friends, so often they get so close. But it's right doctrine that's wrongly applied in Job's circumstance. It's true, isn't it, that God knows all things. That one of the greatest slights against God is secret sin. Thinking as though he's not omniscient and doesn't see every single thing that every single person has ever done. As if you can hide from God. Yet Job, we know because of the prologue, he hasn't done anything to deserve this sin. So Zophar's simple counsel is off base. Look at verse 13 and 14. If you prepare your heart, you'll stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell 
in your tents. It really, it really is that simple, this retribution theology. You get what you deserve, or so far, you actually deserve worse. Therefore, repent and be restored. And what's striking about the friends is something we haven't actually brought out to this point, but all of them essentially agree with the counsel of Zophar here, repent and be restored. You just scan your eyes through the next few verses. Look at all the blessings that's going to come into your life, Job, if you would just merely repent of your sin. He says it's going to be so full of brightness that verse 17 announces your life will be brighter than the noonday sun. Its darkness will be like the morning. And what you need to see then, by this point in the narrative, what we have before Job are not counselors and comforters, nor are they properly friends, but they are pawns in Satan's hands. Why can we say that? Because you're, I just remember from the first two chapters, what, what did Satan say to God? The only reason Job worships you is because of his prosperity. If you let me take him into poverty, he's going to curse you. Oh, we said in weeks past, no one worships you, Satan says, if all they have is you. And that's, in many ways, what the friends are saying to Job here. Why should you repent? In order that you might get prosperity again. Why should you return to the Lord? Because everything's going to get better. As if the prosperity is really the point of the matter. So, so far's rebuke now leads Job to his reproof of the system. Because by this point, it's made its kind of cycle through three different friends. The triumvirate of counsel is complete. And every single one is agreeing with this idea that, Job, you're just getting what you deserve. Innocent people don't suffer. You really actually deserve worse. All you need to do is repent, seek God's understanding and discipline, and everything's going to be just fine. And what I want to show you now from chapter 12 through the second or first half of chapter 13 is how Job in four ways is going to see that system is fundamentally flawed. The counseling and comforting system of his friends is off for four reasons. He says, number one, the system is cruel. The system is cruel. Look at what we're told in verse 4 of chapter 12. Job confesses to his friends, I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man am a laughingstock. Verse 5, in the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The system means, by virtue of my simple misfortune, you hold me in contempt. Because I deserve it, is what he says. And then he goes on in the rest of, or at least verse 7 through 12 in chapter 12, to say the system isn't simply cruel, it's shallow. Because if you just glance your eyes through verse 7 and 12, he, he seemingly agrees with counsel that has come from the friends by this point, saying that yes, if you look at the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, you look at the wisdom tradition that belongs of old, as he says in verse 9, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? You're, you're coming along and telling me, dear friends, that God has done this to you. Well, tell me something I don't know, is what Job says. This system, for all of its supposed profundity, is nothing more than cruel and shallow. And then what he's going to say in the rest of chapter 12 into chapter 13, it's safe. The system is far too safe. 
I think I've told some of you before the story of a man named Eli Kuo, an Australian man who died in 1989. And he was a man that died due to his foolishness. He was training in the art of Kung Fu, and his Kung Fu master had said he had reached a level of expertise in the discipline that he himself could tear apart wild animals. And so in order to prove that he was that capable, he decided to leap over the fence at the Melbourne Zoo one night. And kids, he found himself intentionally, he put himself into the lion's den to see if he really could compete with the wild animals. And of course, the next morning, the workers there found Eliquo dead in the lion's den because it was much more dangerous than he actually understood. And what Job's getting ready to tell his friends is God is sovereign, yes. That's the shallowness of your system. But it's far too safe for God's sovereignty is altogether terrifying is what he says. Look at verse 13. With God are wisdom and might and he has counsel. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, no one can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, no one can open. And then it's just subject after verb, subject after verb. The divine identity of God combined with what he sovereignly does that gets Job to a point where he says, just glance over to chapter 13, where he says in verse 11, will not his majesty terrify you? And the dread of him fall upon you. Yes, God is sovereign, but your system is too safe. It can't account for God's sovereignty. That means sometimes innocent people actually do suffer. Sometimes we don't get what we properly deserve, is what Job says. Which leads to the fourth and final part of his assessment of their system is that it's wrong. It's not just shallow, cruel, and safe. It's ultimately in the final verdict according to Job. It's wrong. Look at what he says in chapter 13, verse 4. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your Wisdom, let's skip over to verse 12. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. You, friends, are utterly helpless to me and my grief. Because the system is utterly worthless. That's his reproof to so far's rebuke. And in the rest of our text tonight, second half of chapter 13 through chapter 14, what we find Job doing is, is making a request. As he turns his attention now, as he often does, to speak more directly to the Lord. Look at verse 20. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide my face. Sorry, hide myself from your face. He simply says, seemingly, why don't you just leave me alone? Withdraw your hand. And then he says in the next few verses, give me a chance, notice the end of verse 22, let me speak and you will reply to me. Again, Job is wanting to argue his case before God. But we can say something quite quickly about what comes in chapter 14. You know, students, if you know your Bible well, you, you know that the book of Ecclesiastes is a, is a book of wisdom and it's a book that finds this teacher, this, this preacher, 
uh, going through a litany of different things that he thinks will find meaning and fulfillment in life and just getting to the point where he says, vanity of vanities, it's all empty, it's all meaningless. And multiple times, Job seemingly is kind of in that wisdom tradition because really what comes in chapter 14 is nothing more than Job saying, guess what? Death comes to everybody. It doesn't come to plants. He'll say in verse 7 of chapter 14, there's hope for a tree if it be cut down that it will sprout again, that its shoots will not Cease, verse 10, but a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last and where is he? I can't remember who exactly it was, but it was a well-known scholar, academic in the British world of a few centuries ago that did his work with a skull on his desk right in front of him. And you might know that centuries of people past have often had different things maybe that they wore in their house that had a Latin phrase that simply meant remember death. That many people from ages gone by have understood that one of the principal parts of being a human being is that you recognize the reality that you're soon going to die. And you can understand why Job, in the midst of all of his tragedy and calamity, he's so fixated, as we've seen so often in this book already by chapter 14, fixated on death. But what I want to show you is how even in the midst of all of that darkness, there is this peculiar light that's shining through. Look at verse 14 through 16. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you and you would long for the work of your hands for then you would number my steps. You can circle that word there, kids, in your Bible, if you've got a pen, verse 14, renewal. It really is nothing more than an ancient way of talking about resurrection. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, yes, I'm going to die. Is there hope of living again? And he says, yes, there is hope of something changing. There is hope of renewal. There's hope that God's not going to forget the work of his hands. I'm pointing us forward to that great, unique reality of the Christian gospel, that it's a gospel not only of Christ's death, but of his resurrection. That Psalm 16 prophesied, God would not let his Holy One see corruption, that he would not forget the work of his hands, and it's Christ's resurrection that, of course, becomes the ground of our own resurrection, that dead becomes alive, not only spiritually, but forever, eternally, when God comes sending his Son to return for his people, that bodies then rise out of the grave with bodies that are imperishable, able to be with God for all eternity. You see verse 17, he looks forward to this time when my transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. I wonder if you're in here tonight and you've looked to Jesus Christ in faith and are therefore hoping in a renewal, a resurrection at the end of all things. If as it were, the Lord has taken all of your iniquity and put it in a bag. And it's eventually going to do away with it. Never to be seen for all eternity. This is Job's request. But as soon as that light flashes through in the midst of his darkness, it gets him by the end of chapter 14, feeling only pain in his body, mourning only for himself. He feels utterly destitute, isolated, left alone. Will you hope in God? When you suffer all alone, how will you hope 
in God when you suffer all alone. Some years ago, I was watching a movie with Emily. It was about this father, single father, if I recall correctly, who had a unique way of educating his children. And one of the core tenets of his curriculum was he wanted children to think carefully and critically about the words that they used. And about the only thing that's stuck with me from that movie is a scene where, where the dad calls out to one of the children and says, hey, what do you think about such and such book? And this child says, oh, that's interesting. And the children around this child begin to shout forth, banned word! Banned word! As he just begins to wax eloquent about how interesting is a meaningless word. It doesn't say anything of definitive substance. And as I was reflecting on Job chapter 11 through 14 this week and this unifying thread of God's sovereignty throughout, I wonder how often it can be even in our circles perhaps that this word sovereignty is almost like a banned word in our spirituality. It's misunderstood. It's even misapplied in Job's circumstance. And so what I want to do as we begin to close, I want to help you see how God's sovereignty is working itself out in the course of this exchange with Zophar in three particular ways. Number one, I want you to see that sufferers often turn in the midst of God's sovereignty. All I mean by that is, if you have eyes to see, you see, I trust, that Job is often in the depths of despair. And then suddenly there'll be this like ray of gospel hope. But then almost as quickly as it came, it begins to vanish. And back into the pit of despair, Job goes up and down, back and forth. And I wonder if you've known that experience personally. That when suffering and tragedy strikes, it seems like you have this momentary grip and grasp of that which is good. But then... The pit of despair swallows you up only two or three minutes later. Perhaps some of you have tried to minister to someone in that kind of cycle. And perhaps you find it altogether difficult. Job's friends are finding it altogether difficult and their counseling is going far awry from the point. And Job says partly because, secondly, you need to see that sufferers can be terrified about God's sovereignty. It's one of the more striking realities that reveals itself in the course of this book that Job speaks about being terrified of God. Because Job says, I know just how sovereign God is. If you glance back to chapter 13, we mentioned what he said in verse 11, will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? If you skip down to verse 20 and 21, when he's asking this request, only grant me two things, then I will hide my face, not hide myself from your face, withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. You know, it's like that old scene, isn't it, in the Chronicles of Narnia when Susan Pevensey comes along and speaks with the beavers and she's hearing about this Lion King Aslan for the first time and she has no idea what he's like and so she says, uh, is he safe? Because of course, kids, you understand in a way that even Ellie Quo didn't so many years ago in Australia that lions aren't safe. And Mr. Beaver cackles aloud and says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's the final thing you need to see here. Uh, Job realizes that a sovereign God isn't safe. But we need to see not only that sufferers can often be terrified at God's sovereignty, that sufferers must trust in God's sovereignty. 
Because look at what we're told in verse 15 of chapter 13. One of the more famous statements that comes in a book full of famous statements. Job says, though he slay me. Because you see that terrifying sovereignty, don't you? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. There's a way in which in the Christian life we're always balancing, aren't we? The fear of God with faith in God. Terror towards God with appropriate trust in God. Knowing that God is, of course, not safe, but he is quite good. That God is sovereignly ruling over all things. So that when you suffer, the great comfort in a situation like your own. A situation where the Lord might cast you into suffering. A situation like Job. When you feel altogether lonely, there still is immense hope. The sovereign God of the universe is one in whom you can hope and find renewal and relief. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would bind us up in the midst of your hands of mercy. And that we would know the kindness that we would know the gentleness with which you treat your beloved children. Lord, give us that full orbed view of your sovereignty, knowing what it means that you rule and reign over all things. And the fear and reverence and awe that such an announcement demands. But also because you reign over all things, you rule over us for our good and for your glory. And in no safer hands can we be found than yours. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.